Welcome to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I am here with my co-host Cliff Staten, who is in our uh, Florida studio, as usual now this year. Um, good morning, Cliff. Good morning, Jean. How are you? Good. How are you doing? <clears throat> doing great. Good. Doing great. So uh, we are going to be talking about immigration policy this uh, this week. Last week we featured um, an interview with Carolyn Forche. Um, a poet of, of witness who um, spent considerable time and had amazing experiences in uh, Central America, the source of a lot of our um, immig immigrants who are, um, you know, central to our immigration debate today. Um, and that gave us some context. So this week we wanted to follow up and talk about immigration policy. Um, Cliff, can you can you kind of uh, take the lead here and talk about what different types of immigration status there are, because there are a lot of different types. And we sometimes hear about asylum seekers versus refugees versus people coming to work. So can you can you settle or sort out what all those different types are? Sure. There officially there are several types. Uh, one are the permanent permanent residents. OK, these are folks uh, most of you have probably heard of a green card. And that basically means that you have actually the authority to come to the United States and to work in the United States. And to have a green card, you have to be either sponsored by a family or an employer. I know when I was a dean, we hired uh, faculty members from Canada and Great Britain. And we had to work out all the details to get them a green card and so on and so forth. So uh, permanent residents in there, <coughs> excuse me. There are about 12.3 million people in this category. There are also non-immigrants, students that, from abroad that come to U.S. universities, tourists, uh, that are, and those that are here uh, under what we we'll call temporary protected status. And we'll talk about this maybe in a little bit. Uh, but in essence, these are these have uh, they have given a specific, uh, and they're only here for they can only be here as long as their visa until it expires. Okay, uh, and then obviously there are the undocumented, those that come here without permission or illegally through a non-port of entry. And the best estimates, Pew, Pew, Pew Research shows about 10.5 million undocumented people in the United States today, uh, of which uh, most actually, interestingly enough, came here legally with a visa. And most are, have just simply overstayed their visa and are here living and so on and so forth. So, so people who came in, you know, flew in on an aircraft and then just didn't go back. Right, right. Yeah. Students that may be here or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Um, so and it's the it's the undocumented that gathers the attention of of, uh, of the news today. So um, uh, there's a question you often hear. Well, why don't these people just become a citizen? Mm -hmm. Okay, now, I don't want to spend too much time on how to become a citizen, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a long process, actually, as, as you well know, Gene. Yeah. Uh, you have to be a lawful permanent resident for five years, meaning you have to have a green card for five years. And then you can apply for the naturalization process uh, where you have to be at least 18. You have to pass a language proficiency exam. You can't have a criminal record. That means if you went across the border, undocumented odds are good you won't you won't get uh you won't be granted citizenship and you have to pass a citizenship exam and i think uh haven't you given some of your intro american government students that exam I, uh 
Not intro to American government, okay. but intro to comparative politics students okay. get it. <laughs> well, I've given it to several of my students. Yes. Of course, and um, you'd be surprised how many uh, young 18-year-olds can't pass this. <laughs> yeah, but that's actually, I mean, not to pick on young 18-year-olds, um, because uh, there's uh, been, uh, I saw a study a couple of years ago where, you know, random sample of average uh, U.S. born Americans were given a subset of the questions and the pass rate was quite dismal um, across all age groups. And so, right. um, you know, people coming to the U.S. are uh, required to, you know, again, as you said, demonstrate proficiency in the language and knowledge of our history, political system, um, you know, basic, basic information that allows people to be a good citizen. And uh, that's that's more than we require for people born here. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so, you know, the question might come up, you know, can undocumented individuals, can they ever obtain, become a permanent resident, get a green card and eventually become a citizen? And there are several ways. Uh, one could marry a U.S. citizen. Uh, and the, the immigration lawyers I've talked to said, well, if you've overstayed your visa and you marry a U.S. citizen, there's still a pretty good chance you could, you can get your green card and ultimately become a U.S. citizen. Uh, if you've just crossed the border, though, that they, they would argue it's very problematic when the question whether that you could ever get a green, green card. <laughs> Some undocumented individuals do serve in the military during time of war and yeah. uh, the war on terror, which is technically, I guess, still going on, mm -hmm. uh, does count on that. Although the Bush administration has put, I, I mean, the Trump, Trump administration has pushed back on this a little bit. Yeah. Um, there is, um, if you are undocumented and have lived in the United States for 10 years and you have a family, again, you know, the uh, immigration lawyers I've talked to would argue that there, there's about a 50-50 chance of you being able to apply for You have to show you have a family, and if you were had to leave, they, they would be at, at risk and so on and so forth. But even then, there, there's certainly, certainly no guarantee. Uh, those that have temporary protected status. Could you explain that, please, what TPS is? Yeah. Temporary TPS protected status? Is a category in which... If, let's say there's a natural disaster or a civil war and people are fleeing the country, uh, we can grant them temporary protected status to come to the United States. It's only for a specific time period. They uh, quite often are given a temporary work permit, but it does not necessarily lead to a green card. So this is actually relevant to, to um, a, a new facet of our immigration debate that's been in the news this week. Um, I imagine uh, most, if not all of our listeners are aware of the catastrophic hurricane that devastated a few of the islands in the Bahamas, which is so um, near to US, uh, the U.S. mainland. Um, and... Uh, you know, people are having to be evacuated from those islands because, like, there's no services, there's no water, there's right. no electricity. And um, some are coming to the U.S. and it would be, th this would be exactly the sort of circumstance when um, these, some of these folks would receive temporary protected status, a TPS um, a admission. Um, but 
part of the controversy is that the the administration has been very very mixed in their messaging about what will be admitted um, or who will what will what the process is sorry and who will be admitted. Um, I think at and, the, and, and it differs whether they're coming in by airplane or by boat, which is kind of a strange distinction. Yeah, um, that's that. Yeah, I think that feels a little bit arbitrary. Although there may be wealth factors there, um, candidly. Um, also, uh, if you come by plane, you have to have a passport. Um, and that's also a, like the boat folks with or without documents are just not allowed in at present, I believe. Um, and I mean, a passport seems like a normal thing to have to have to enter another country. But uh, in when a disaster, you in may a, not in, have access to it. No. If you like put your kid on your shoulders and wade through floodwaters to escape your house for higher ground, which was the reality for a lot of folks. Um, your passport in, is the last thing you're going to think about. Right. Right. You're just literally, you know, trying to get out with your life um, and your passport may well be underwater at that point. I mean, the context here is significant too, and I don't want to get too deep into the storm, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, too deep into the storm, but like uh, the islands that were so devastated, they their highest point was 30 feet and the storm surge was 23 feet. Um, so, you know, the flooding was very, very real. The winds were such that it was the equivalent, um, which would be maybe more meaningful to people in our area, of an EF3 tornado sitting over them for basically two days. Um, I mean, that's that's a, a sort of destruction that... It, it's that, frightening. Oh, it's. I mean, to me, it's absolutely unimaginable. And to, again, you know, require documents. At that point, you're watching the, your building get blown down, your building's underwater, um, you're struggling to survive. And again, as you said, the passport's the last thing you're thinking about at that point. Yeah. Right. So, so we do, we can offer certain groups temporary protected status. I know in the aftermath of the upheavals in Central America, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, many of those folks were granted TPS status and uh, and many of them were granted TPS status for a very, very long time here in Mm -hmm. the United States. And so there are a couple of other categories, uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Mm Now, technically, they're different, but they're very much related. Uh, Refugees uh, is covered by international law uh, in which uh, people are uh, leaving a civil war. Their lives are being threatened. They have applied for refugee status via the United Nations. They've gone through a vetting process via the UN. And under treaty, many countries then take in many of these refugees and and they go through another series of vetting in the individual countries as well and so political refugees are an example of those that can once they're here with if they within a year they can also apply for a green card now asylum seekers are those that come to the united states seeking asylum again trying to escape uh um questionable circumstances at home, their lives are being threatened, uh, uh, so on and so forth. But in essence, they go through the hearing here in the United States and become a refugee in that sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. So asylum seeker is someone who's 
wanting to gr- be be granted refugee status, and yeah. then they can both apply for a gr- for a green card uh, with within within a year here. And I think it's important for people to realize um, two things about that. Number one, um, both refugee status, just you know, conventionally traditional form, and um, asylum status are um, provisions of U.S. law. Um, right. So when we allow that, we are simply following our own laws. And moreover, particularly with regard to asylum seekers, our law allows people to apply for that within the country. Um, and that's been a, a feature of uh, the immigration policy debate uh, recently as well, um, because uh, the Trump administration has been trying to keep asylum applications out of the country. But that's actually not what our law says. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In other words, they've attempted to, in various ways, trying to circumvent U.S. law, to put it in very simple terms. Uh, that's exactly what they've done. So yeah. so most of these folks, um, I mean, I, would, I just mentioned Mexico, um, and, and you mentioned uh, Central American countries a few minutes ago. Um, m- most of these folks are uh, coming here for... Uh, asylum, seeking asylum, and um, basically running for their lives. Could you, being our, our Latin America expert, could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the circumstances in El Salvador, uh, Honduras, Guatemala that are leading to uh, people wanting to enter the U.S. and seek asylum? Well, it is interesting since uh, if we're going to focus just on the southwest border there, that until that's where most of the debate in our, for, about our immigration that's, policy that's exactly is. Right. Although, exactly. as you said, and I'll just reiterate this, um, the vast majority of undocumented uh, immigrants within the U.S. are not folks who cross that southern border, but rather entered through an airport, typically with a visa, legal status, and then overstayed their status. Right, right. Yeah. But up until 2007, um, of those coming across the border, most were Mexicans. That has changed since 2007. It's declined considerably. And since 2016, the majority are are non-Mexicans, most of them coming from the area. I think we talked about it a little bit about last week. Just a bit, uh, yeah. The Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Uh, now, kind of couple that change with also prior to... Um, 2014, most people coming across were single males. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we're talking about the majority being family units. So a big change in terms of who's coming or who is coming in terms of they're now coming primarily from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, the majority, and they're also family units. And this is related uh, primarily to the upheavals and the uh, problems in these in these particular countries uh, in the post 19 the, the 60s 70s and 80s you had a lot of uh, political upheavals mm-hmm. violence occurring revolutionary violence occurring occurring that has since calmed down and many of these countries do have uh, what I'll call formal democracies they have elections they have elected opposite parties and so on and so forth but they lack the ability to control law and order in their own countries. And what has happened is that in many of these areas, uh, gangs have actually taken over control and run as, as 
like governments would do. They run protect, they quote, protect businesses from rival gangs. Of course, that comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. And they recruit uh, young people as early as 10, 12 years old. And in many areas, they don't have an option. Yeah, I was going to say, when you say recruit, it may be recruit at the end of a gun. Yeah. (laughs) I'm using my hands and putting quotes here. (laughs) It doesn't work on radio so well. (laughs) But yes, yes. And so... And, and and the interesting thing is the gangs actually uh, came from the United States. Many of these, the gangs started the MS-13, the one that President Trump likes to talk about quite a bit, actually started in Los Angeles. They were individuals who had fled the political upheavals in the 70s and 80s, come to the United States and created gangs. MS-13 started in Los Angeles and because of their gang activities in LA, then they were sent back to El Salvador and ultimately Honduras and Guatemala. And they did what they, they created gangs. And ultimately governments, while they do have elected officials and even functioning court systems, they can't really enforce their laws. And the local police, uh, the local police even wear, wear, will wear, uh, covers over their face because they, the fear is that their family would be would be killed by the gangs and so on. So this is what is driving uh, families coming to the United States uh, uh, from uh, from these particular countries. And, uh, you know, our piece last week by Carolyn Fourche, uh, what really kind of hit hit home on that. And some of the background. Yeah. I mean, I have to say if, if uh, my 10 year old child were being uh, force forcibly uh, quote unquote recruited by a gang, I think I would uh, do what I needed to do to try to protect my 10 year old child. Absolutely. You yeah. do anything. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think there's anything that could deter them from coming just yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. And it is interesting also to note that these individuals They've been told they can apply under U.S. and international law. They can apply for political asylum. So the number of political asylum seekers, have, first of all, their families, have increased dramatically as well. So we have seen significant changes in terms yeah. of coming across the border. It's not Mexicans. It's those from the Northern Triangle. It's not young men primarily. It's family units. And rather than just coming across to work and send money home, they're actually seeking political asylum here. So that, yeah. that, that is a significant change in terms of our immigration system having to deal with deal with deal with this issue here because the asylum claims i mean those all have to be adjudicated they people don't just come in and say i'm threatened um you know let me stay so that i can be safe they and this is one of the tricky things about these claims um sort of like uh you know hurricane refugees right yeah they have to have documentation and again when you're you're fleeing for your life um you know you may not um uh you you know you may not think about or even be aware of the type and you know the nature and how extensive the documentation needs to be that you would need to to bring with you and also things are lost while traveling i mean some of these folks are literally riding on top of trains Um, sure and they face people that rob them yes from them uh, yeah, you know, yeah. you have everything in your backpack and someone comes along and under a gun and takes your backpack. So yeah, you don't yeah. have that material that you thought was going to have to help you uh, when your asylum case. Yeah. And 
those folks, um, you know, who cannot uh, prove their claim with that sort of documentation, uh, they will be deported from the U.S. Correct. Yeah. That's right. right. Yeah. So perhaps we might want to take a break. Here yeah, I think we, we probably are. It's, it's about that time. <laughs> um, so the International Power Hour will be right back. As humans, we ask ourselves all kinds of questions. But what if we were forced to ask ourselves a question every day that affected the outcome of the most basic things, the most important things in our lives? The question is, what is your sexual orientation or gender identity? And the answer is the difference between keeping your job or getting fired. The answer is the difference between staying in your home or getting evicted. The answer is the difference between receiving medical treatment or not. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against people based on their answer to this question. LGBT Americans have the right to say, I do, but they don't have the same basic rights as everyone else. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. Welcome back to The Cat Show. Up next, we have Nico. Nico is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right. A group known especially for their sunspot sleeping, ball chasing, leg rubbing, and of course, companionship. Just look how she struts. It's like she owns the place. And see how she curls up and cuddles her person. The pitch on her purring is simply perfect. Nice one. Fantastic cat. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Nico is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. More. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten, and we are talking about uh, U.S. immigration policy today, uh, in particular with regard to our southern border. Um, so, Cliff, let's talk about the Trump administration. Trump was elected on an anti-immigration platform against all types of immigrants, um, and of course, uh, he promised to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. One of his senior assistants, uh, Stephen Miller, who worked with our former attorney general, uh, former senator, um, also anti-immigrant Jeff Sessions, um, is considered to be the author of the immigration policies. Um, so in general, what has been the Trump administration's approach to immigration? Well, in general, they have tried to reduce uh, the numbers coming into the United States, whether they're both <laughs> legal or undocumented. Um, they initially were very hostile to political refugees, uh, refusing, uh, reducing that number considerably. I know uh, our friends in Louisville, where they typically get uh, several, a lot of political refugees, mm -hmm. their numbers have declined tremendously because of that. They, the cap was reduced again this year, like every, every year, and the one for next year that they've established yes, has been reduced yes. again. Yeah. They have... Uh, 
refused to admit immigrants from several Muslim countries, the so-called Muslim ban that went through several iterations and ultimately court the, challenges. Court, the court approved it after several several times being turned down. Uh, they have tried to circumvent and basically, I would argue, violated the laws that deal with political asylum. Uh, they've separated families at the border and violated U.S. law. And in general, as I said, they basically want to reduce the numbers that immigrants that are coming to the United States, whether they're here legally or or uh, illegally or as undocumented. And uh, they typically, when you uh, when you would uh, hear President Trump talk, uh, they look at the immigrants coming in from the Southwest and would argue, well, they're they're all members of gangs, they're criminals, they're terrorists, and they take jobs from Americans. Now, I'm not going to repeat those claims because the vast majority of studies, even those by uh, Trump's own government, basically rejects rejects those arguments. Now, there's some evidence that at very labor-intensive, low-paying jobs, there's some competition with und- undocumented immigrants, but for the most part, um, they're not quote, taking jobs from Americans, as, as the administration argues. And, and this is cited over and over and over again, of course. And yeah. then, of course, you know, his, his promise to build a wall, which we can talk about at the, maybe the end of, end of the session here today. Yeah. So those immigrants, as you, as you mentioned, they, the, the evidence suggests that the, in the vast majority of, of uh, contexts and situations, they're not taking U.S. jobs, um, but also they are contributing to our economy. Everything that they purchase while here, the rent they pay, um, all of that is, you know, money circulating through our economy, which help pay other people's wages. That's correct. And, and you know, they pay taxes. That's, I think, it's something that a lot of people do not understand yeah. is that these folks do pay taxes and they are ineligible to get the benefits from those taxes. Right. They're Such never going to get Social Security. Uh, They're not going to get Medicaid. Any yeah. type of, of uh, uh, temporary assistance for an eating family, all of that is Health care, except they in don't emergencies. Have access to. Right. Um, yeah. So they're paying in and not, not able to get out. Right. They're Which paying much more than they get out. Now, yes, their kids can go to school, but... It's U.S. law. Every everybody in this country have access has access to a high school education, whether you're a citizen or not. That that's federal law, which is in our interest. I mean, it would be Absolutely. very sure. socially destructive to, um, you know, have an un, effectively an underclass of uneducated people. That, right. That is a recipe for tremendous problems. Right. Yeah. Right. So the administration being hostile to the, to immigrants in April of 2018, uh, they officially announced a zero tolerance policy. Um, And the policy actually began in 2017. Uh, The ACLU had actually filed a, a, a suit against the Trump administration in 2017, but they announced this policy in April 2018. And in essence, what it meant was that if someone crosses the border undocumented, okay, then and if they're captured then or they're put in a detention facility to await the hearings before a judge. Of course, this also includes those that were asylum seekers as well. They lumped all these together. 
Yeah, who, and those folks are not typically captured, wrong. right? That's right. They That's are right. seeking, but, but the whole the whole nature of seeking asylum is that you come, um, enter the country, find the first government representative you can find, and, and I'm say, apply. "Yeah, right. I'd like to apply for asylum, please." Um, so they're so, put in in these detention centers to be held for their 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 uh, review in the courts. Okay, now. Prior to this, in many of these cases, these individuals were actually turned loose to family members or, or take, given over to family members and expected to come back for their hearings. Mm -hmm. Now, quite honestly, some of them left. There's no doubt about that. But some of them, actually a majority, actually came back, did what exactly what the government wanted, came back for their hearings here. Yeah. But the Trump administration decided, well, we're not even going we're not going to allow this to happen. We're not going to allow those to to be turned loose and just just escape into 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 the United States. So we're going to keep everyone in a detention facility. OK. Uh, and so and someone might say, well, that's fine. What's wrong with that? OK. In other words, why is that a problem? Well, remember, most coming across now are families. Mm -hmm. And legally, the U.S. government cannot house children in adult prisons or detention centers. So the Trump administration officially implemented an official child separation policy, even though, as I said, it had unofficially started in 2017. Now, the program was... Um, um, I, I, and I think I'm expressing most people that have that have studied this program. It was p very poorly implemented. And the outcome, which yeah. everyone has seen, is that children were literally lost in the system. Yeah. Part of the poor implementation was that they actually didn't keep very good records of That's like right. parent names and children names and where the parents were sent and where the children were sent. And, you know, like this is a big country with a lot of different places that people are being sent and, and, you know, a goodly number of people. And so without having, you know, literally just proper record keeping in place, there, there were a right. lot of lost kids that like over a thousand. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, I think there uh, I was reading an article by a couple uh, immigration lawyers and they found that there are at least 700 kids that are still miss that yeah, still yeah. have been tied to their uh, put back with their parents here. 700 children who had families and were separated right. and, and are just lost now. Right. Like that's a that's a lot. It is. It really is. And it, it well, anyway, my point is, is that so the children were were separated and put in facilities by themselves while their parents were put in an adult facility. And we've all seen the reporting and you don't have to rely upon your member of Congress and what he or she saw at these facilities. This is right out of government reports that the yeah. facilities lacked basic hygiene. Most of them were, were cages. Children ages 7 to 10 were told to watch, take care of the infants. There was abuse by the guards. Uh, again, just very, very poorly implemented. Lack of showers, like, soap, toothbrushes yes, have been documented. Yeah. None of, none, of this, none of this was taken care of. And, and, of course, under the U.S. law, the Flores Agreement, which was an agreement that uh, there was a court 
struggle that started in the 1980s, but in 1997, basically says that here are the standards under which you can keep children in a detention facility. You have to provide certain hygiene facilities and so on and so forth, plus no more than 20 days. Mm-hmm. And so after 20 days, you're supposed to find foster parents or get them back with their with their parents. Of course, their parents are in another facility awaiting uh, waiting a hearing before a judge here. So many of the children, as as Jean mentioned, were sent off to families across the country via the foster care system and so on. And literally children were lost. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't care whether it's a Democratic government or a Republican government. There's there's just no excuse in that, plain and simple. Yeah. That, that's just cruel. Uh, anyway, uh, sorry for my uh, editorializing on that, but that's okay. Um, parents who finally heard their case and were sent back have been try- many of them are still trying to find- locate their children. Uh, so this, 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 as you yeah. might imagine, all this and everyone who's watched any of the news at all has seen the huge public and international backlash to this to this program. Um, ultimately, in the summer of 2019, uh, the Trump administration, at least publicly, ended the program. But the immigration officials I've talked to and the lawyers I've talked to basically said it really hasn't. Yeah. And they said since then, as I said, that's where I got the number 700 from several from the Pew, Pew Research and from several lawyers here in Tallahassee who work with immigrants who have access to these numbers, basically argue that what their administration is doing is that there is a part of the law which says if we determine the parent is unfit, we can separate the child from the parent. Now, on the surface, that makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah. But apparently it's being abused. So any crime that they may have committed, even even, even uh, 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 a, a, a nonviolent crime in Guatemala is used to determine, to, to tell that they're, non, they're not fit to be parents and they're separated from their family. So in, to some extent, this is, this is still going on today. So Cliff, I think that, um, you know, objectively, most U.S. Americans find these reports of, of, you know, the separated families, the lost children, the conditions that um, some have faced. Um, certainly not every child in the system has been abused, but there have been reports, you know, the reports of like lack of hygiene supplies sure. and other things are more widespread. But, um, you know, I think I think like pretty much everybody finds those things um, concerning at the very least um, painful, like nobody's happy about that. Um, So, yeah. And one of the things, I mean, regardless of your, you know, partisan viewpoints, this, this, like no one feels good about this, but, but it does raise the question, like, and you mentioned, you know, the international backlash. This has gotten tons of attention in U.S. media, international media, um, you know, and, and one of the issues that comes up is, well, you know, if, if like if families know, if parents know that things are going to be this bad, why do they do this to their kids? I mean, ultimately, the parents are making choices to bring to come into the U.S. and put their children in this situation. So, uh, you know. Why are they doing this? Well, ultimately, you have to remember, most of these families are poor. 
They're coming from countries where they may not have access to the media. They may they can't afford newspapers and so on. And so they're making a decision. They're making a decision to save their lives to come to the United States. And they may not know that this that this is going on. And they discover it at the border, but at the same time, this is a choice they're they're making. Is am I going to am I going to be allow my child to be taken over by gangs, or be killed? Is the family going to be killed? If my husband's a policeman, what happens to our family? They're making decisions that uh, they're making a value decision, and and life and death uh, would supersede uh, 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 any type of uh, hostility uh, or or. Uh, uh, discrimination uh, that they might receive at the hands of the American of the United States government. So, so that, that, that's the way I understand that. So kind of like rock in a hard place kind of decision. Exactly. We can stay in our country and potentially be killed, um, or we can flee and and gamble essentially, hope for the best, hope that you know, assuming they have heard reports, because not everybody has heard them, of course. Um, but uh, you know, assuming they've heard reports you know, gamble and hope it doesn't happen to us. Now, what is interesting, since most of them now are actually seeking political asylum. Right. Now, remember, it is legal to come to the United States and ask for political asylum. You can come into the country as an undocumented person. You ask to seek political asylum. And so this is uh, something the Trump administration has tried to get around U.S. law, to circumvent. Under U.S. law, you are allowed to apply for, and you're allowed, you're, you're given due process, you get an initial hearing to see whether you meet the general uh, 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 standards for political asylum, and then you're reassigned a more formal hearing. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, between that time period, Typically, those folks are, are if you have family members, they go to stay with them, or, or the, in other words, they're not held in, in detention centers. And the, the uh, Trump administration has tried to hold these folks in detention centers as a result of this. The interesting thing is the Obama administration dealt with this issue as well. Of course. And what they did is they developed a case management system. Mm-hmm in which when you apply for political asylum, you are assigned a case manager, maybe a social worker or someone like that, who's going to shepherd you through this process. And so when you have, after your first hearing and you're, quote, turned loose into the United States, the social worker keeps up with you, makes sure you check in at certain points, and ultimately make you, make sure you make the final hearing. Well, this had a 99% success rate. It was just a test program, right? It wasn't like applied to the entire system. It was a, it was a test program. But But the success rate in that, yeah, 99% is incredible. People had their hearings, they went through it and so on. And Trump, uh, the Trump administration basically uh, summarily ended the program uh, within the first four months of, 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 him becoming president. One of the issues with this too, um, that, you know, the idea of letting these people out and so they can join, you know, family or friends while they're awaiting these procedures is the cost of the detention centers. Um, You know, I'll be honest and say I didn't dig up the data and I should have, Um, but the, the like per day cost of detaining somebody, child or adult is astronomical. 
Actually, it it varies depending upon whether it's government run or whether mm-hmm. there's an industry. The private sector's jumped in this, and the Trump administration has been very favorable to these folks. Folks, and like uh, they, it's not uncommon for private industries to charge three to four hundred dollars per child per day. Yeah. Okay. Whereas uh, I've seen estimates of public facilities run by the government of $38 a day. That's a big difference here. And there's a whole industry. Of course, we can talk about, you know, I could get Dr. Ortiz talk about the private uh, prison system in this country. But clearly they, they've jumped in uh, in terms of, 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 in terms of uh, dealing, with, dealing with trying to deal with this issue. The private sector's jumped in and taken advantage of it. Well, at three to $400 per day per child, um, you know, that's lucrative. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, as we know, uh, the conditions aren't the best in, in these facilities. Uh, so, you know, the Trump administration has recently filed uh, via executive order. They're trying to uh, um, uh, trying to change the regulations, the agreement in terms of how long they can keep children in these facilities and the yeah. standards that they have to meet. Uh, that's going to end up in court as well. So uh, it, 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 it uh, anyway. So, For almost every piece of this, I mean, people need to realize, and we've heard some stuff, and we've sort of mentioned little bits and pieces too, but virtually every piece of this is being litigated in our court systems. Correct. Correct. Just, yes. I mean, there are so many cases dealing yes. with this, some from states, some from private entities. Um, Every and and all over the U.S. Um, yes, yes, huge, yes. huge amounts of litigation. In essence, we really need um, the Congress and the White House to sit down, uh, and and we need a comprehensive immigration reform. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Yeah, you know, and both sides. And, agree. I mean, both the Democrats and the Republicans um, have you know called for immigration reform. That's exactly Needing right. immigration reform is not a partisan divide. How you do it, though. Well, how you do it and what kind of leadership do you get from the White House and so on. All of these factors play into this. Uh, you know, we live in a highly partisan era. So uh, but clearly there was an opportunity in 2013. Uh, the Senate had passed a bipartisan immigration bill, fairly comprehensive, uh, that um, that uh, didn't get a hearing in the House, uh, the Republican-controlled House. Uh, in the since 2018, the House has passed several not comprehensive reforms, but some reforms dealing with immigration, and those uh, have not been he- heard on, on the Senate floor. So, you know, as to when this will happen, you know, that your guess is good as mine. Probably it's not going to happen until after the election, after the presidential election. But at some point, there needs to be a comprehensive reform package because you've got the issue of the uh, DACA students, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. You know, we we have some of these students at IUS. Uh, That has to be included in a comprehensive, comprehensive settlement. And Uh, for anybody who's unaware, um, DACA students uh, are those who um, were brought into the U.S. by their parents when they were small children. They had, you know, no, no agency in that. They didn't decide to come here. They were, um, again, brought by their parents in many cases when they were very, very young. Um, and they have been, uh, although this is also being litigated, um, they were recognized uh, under the Obama administration and given um, some 
protected status, uh, which has um, it was challenged in the courts and has been much more in question under the Trump administration. Um, and well, through an executive order, so yes. the president can modify those as he yeah, on, yeah at, at will. Um, and so. Yeah, these folks, I mean, we've already invested in them. They've been in our schools. They have, this is, I think, an important point, too. Uh, you know, these are people, and some, you know, some of them now are, you know, have been there for years and are now in their, you know, 20s and even 30s. Um, you know, they've never lived outside of the U.S. It's not like That's they right. could. This is their country. Right. It's not like because because of their undocumented status, it's not like they were going, quote unquote, home to their parents' countries, you know, on summer break or something like that. Like that. These are people who have literally never been outside of the of the United States, um, you know, may or may not speak the language of their home of their parents home country. Um, like, and, and I, you often yeah. I will get a question saying, well, why don't these students become citizens? The problem is there's nothing in the law, yeah. a mechanism to allow them to become citizens yeah. because yeah. they're here. Illegally, they can't apply for a green card. They're disqualified for a green card. So they literally have no mechanism to become illegal citizens. So that what that means then is again, this needs to be part of the comprehensive, comprehensive settlement uh, to deal with this. Um, Yeah, these folks have gotten a lot of sympathy from, you know, broadly, uh, you know, U.S. society because obviously, you know. People born and are not quite born, but, you know, raised here when, you know, brought here through, you know, through no choice of their own as children, like and never known anything else. Deporting somebody like that to a place that they've never lived where they know no one and again, may may not even speak the language like that. Right. That strikes many people as, you know, not good treatment of other humans. Um so, but yeah, their legal options are closed and, um, you know, that's, in this that's not the end of the story. Status. Right. Um, laws are changed. Congress makes laws all the time. Um, and so that, that is a feature that really does need, uh, I think, again, universal agreement on that, although not exactly the way, shape and form. Um, but that is something that, that would need to be in any immigration reform law. Right. And, and I think everyone would agree some type of border security has to be in the, in the, in the, uh, in the immigration reform. Okay. Also, Which, yes. Also, that is a nonpartisan form, issue. What form does that take? Yeah, that becomes partisan. But, Absolute. you know, there, I don't, there is no one. <laughs> I, I, I literally would argue probably no one who would just say, um, well, there are some libertarians who argue this, so I take that back. But certainly, um, you know, no, no mainstream Republicans or Democrats who would just say, you know, throw open the borders, you know, get rid of border security, that, just, that just is, let anybody that is, in. That's that is, that's a that's political rhetoric. Yeah, uh, yeah. No one is arguing for open borders. No. So there has to be some type of border security mechanism built in. Yes. The question is, do you do it with modern technology, with uh, with drones and electronics and so on? Uh, or do you, as the president has suggested, build a wall? Okay. Now, as we all know, there some of it is covered by a wall at this point, about 700 some miles of it is wall. Uh, Which is about a third, right? Right, right. Yeah. But the rest of the area, building a wall, um, you know, I will show my own preference there. To me, that that's that's it just simply won't work. Uh, not only will it be costly, you've got to go through 
Indian reservations, private property, parks, all all kinds of things to get this wall built if you even build it. And the bottom line is people will go around it. Yeah. They'll fly over it. Boats. <laughs> Ladders. So. Well, some of the some of the terrain actually, like Right. You know, cliffs and stuff like that. Like we're you like just like given the given the ground, like it's very hard to build a wall. But it has become a big campaign issue. The president um, yeah. campaigned on this uh, uh, and uh, is somewhat committed to this. Uh, the Congress did not grant him money in the last last budget. Uh, uh, talks, and he has uh, maneuvered by taking money, part of the military money, to help initially pay for part of this. I think some of that, was, uh, uh, you know, that that proviso has to do with national security being money be able to switch. Uh, that Congress has, has put in the military budget, I think that will be challenged in court as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's actually um, a relevant point um, because there has been rhetoric about the obstructionist Democrats who, you know, won't in Congress, who won't who won't fund this. Um, right. But that's also not entirely real because uh, in the first, you know, two years of the Trump administration, of course, uh, the Republicans controlled both parts of Congress. That's correct. Absolutely. So, and uh, even with that, Trump was not able to get funding from Congress for the border wall. Yeah. So there's more. My suspicion is most Republicans really don't want to build a wall. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's evidence that it wouldn't be effective. There's evidence that it would be nearly impossible to build in many many parts of the border. Um, obviously very costly. Is that the best is that the best way the to best use that money? Resources like yeah. Job. So yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of complexity around the border wall issue, including again logistics, but also including you know disagreement within the Republican Party about sure. um, the desirability of that. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Well, we are actually about out of time. Looking at the clock. <laughs> So sorry again, uh, but we had technical difficulties at the beginning, which I think we're going to edit out. Um, so this this uh, episode is is a few minutes shorter than usual, um, but we will go ahead and end on time. Um, next week, we are going to be um, having a guest. Mr. Roger Howard is actually one of our former students and IU Southeast alumni. And um, he now works for the state of Indiana in the International Trade Office, and he is going to be joining us next week to talk with us about um, international trade and connecting it to the local level, which I think will be a great conversation. So, yes, thanks. I want to thank everyone for listening. Yep. Uh, everybody have a good week. This is the uh, International Power Hour on Horizon Radio, the voice of IU Southeast.